Welcome to the Healthy Hormones for Women podcast. I'm your host, Samantha Gladish, online nutritionist, weight loss coach, and hormone fixer-upper. I'm excited to bring you a weekly dose of information and inspiration, sharing with you simple and effective strategies from health, wealth, and all things personal growth. Get ready to become the master of your hormones and experience vibrant health to live a life of more power and possibility. Welcome back, everybody. Hope you guys are doing amazing. At the time of this recording and the day of this recording, it is actually a pretty brutal snowstorm here in Toronto, and it sucks. Like, it is just so, so sucky. I'm just not seeing the positive in this right now, and I, I'm i so over winter. I'm just so done with it, and apparently there's supposed to be another storm in a couple of days, and oh my God. I'm just so done with it. I need some sunshine. I mean, even if it's cold and sunny, I will take it. We had a few days of cold and sunshine and that was so much better. But this crazy amount of 10 to 15 centimeters of snow, no, I'm not having it. I'm so, so freaking over it. So if you're listening to this podcast and you are somewhere hot and warm, I am so incredibly jealous of you right now. And I can't even book a trip yet until my book is handed in and then we move into our new home. It's just not happening for me right now with my schedule. So I kind of have to wait. And I know a nice, hot, sunny vacation is on the horizon. It's coming. It's coming. And I can't wait for spring. So I'm hanging in there, staying warm, drinking lots of tea, drinking my anti-aging elixir, which is some hot water with a little bit of lemon or some apple cider vinegar and a scoop of collagen and just mix it together. And you don't even taste the collagen. And it's delicious and it's great. It's perfect for liver detoxification, for skin health, for digestion, gut health. It is wonderful. So go and mix that up and tag me on Instagram at Holistic Wellness Foodie with your anti-aging elixirs. I'd love to see them. All right. So before we dive into today's episode, if you would like to join me on tonight's masterclass, it is an exclusive masterclass that I'm holding for the Healthy Hormones for Women online program. So all the women in that program are joining me tonight live at seven o'clock Eastern time. And we are diving into thyroid, estrogen, cortisol, detoxification, and really helping to answer your questions and provide you with some great strategies and protocols to support these hormones and the symptoms that arise when these hormones are really out of balance. And so if you still want to join, you still can. We had so many people message us over the weekend, still hoping to come join us in the program. And you absolutely can. The program is always open. But before March 1st, we were offering some exclusive bonuses as well as you always get the savings. So if you want to grab those bonuses, there is still time. Head on over to holisticwellness.ca forward slash healthy hormones and come join us. And you can join me tonight in the masterclass. It is a live masterclass, but it will be recorded and sent out after the fact. So even if you can't make it live, we'll send it out to you after and it's all good. And you may have noticed as well, our Facebook group, it used to be called the Holistic Wellness Private Community, but we've now changed it to the Healthy Hormones for Women private community, the podcast community. So just changed the name, felt it was a little bit more in alignment with the podcast. So if you're coming to search us over on Facebook, it's my free Facebook group and anybody can come and join that and connect with us there. And we chat hormones and share recipes and it's just a really great community. So if you were searching for it and you couldn't find it, it's now changed to Healthy Hormones for Women podcast community. So come find us there and hang out with us. All right, let's dive into today's episode. It's a good one. I always love diving into a topic that is new to me and I get to learn new information and new knowledge and some new strategies and protocols that I can implement. And the vagus nerve is not something that I'm very familiar with. The vagus nerve, not V-E-G-A-S, all right, ladies, not Las Vegas, V-A-G-U-S, the vagus nerve is the longest cranial nerve and it passes through the neck and the thorax to the abdomen and it's involved in a lot of things. So if you have poor vagus nerve function, you will experience poor digestion, inflammation, IBS, issues with liver detoxification, even autoimmunity. And there are some amazing strategies and tips shared on today's episode, things that you can implement at home that cost zero, zero dollars, okay? And you're gonna love it. 
And I would love to hear from you after the episode. Come find me over on Instagram at Holistic Wellness Foodie and let me know what strategies you're going to implement. I would love to hear from you. And it's going to be such an insightful episode. And Dr. Navaz shares some pretty epic information. And I know you ladies are going to love it. So Dr. Navaz Habib is an author and speaker who empowers his patients to make small, sustainable changes to blind spots, which may have been overlooked by other healthcare practitioners. As a certified functional medical practitioner and doctor of chiropractic, he works to address missing puzzle pieces, which have a long-lasting impact on energy levels, digestion, metabolism, and hormone health. Having gone through his own personal experiences with poor health and weight struggles, Dr. Habib is well-equipped to implement personalized recommendations for each of his patients. In identifying the root causes of health conditions and addressing them through natural means, he allows his patients to experience the way their bodies were meant to feel rather than continuing to deal with the stressors that are holding them back. Dr. Habib's book, Activate Your Vagus Nerve, is a simple-to-follow guide to help you identify and address a major missing piece in patients dealing with chronic health concerns. This was such an insightful episode. I learned so much today, and I know you guys are going to absolutely love it. So let's dive in with Dr. Navaz Habib. Hi, Navaz. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited you're here. We're diving into a topic that I don't really know too much about. So I'm excited. I feel like you're going to teach me and our audience today so much. So before we dive into that, can you share a little bit more about who you are and what you do? Absolutely. So as I was going through chiropractic college, I was learning a little bit about how to be healthy and what was going on with my own health. And when I was in chiropractic college, I wasn't exactly living that. I got to a point where I weighed 250 pounds. I didn't really realize what I was doing to myself in terms of my own health. And once I really hit kind of the end of my rope there, I decided I needed to make a change. And I was lucky enough to meet people in the realm of functional medicine, Dr. Patel, Sachin Patel specifically. And what he did was introduce me to the idea of taking action steps to improve my own health. And so being a chiropractor, being a doctor of chiropractic, I was able to take my practice and shift it towards the functional medicine realm. And in functional medicine, now I'm able to help my patients uncover, address and identify the root cause of their chronic health conditions, especially autoimmune conditions is where I tend to focus a lot of my attention with my patients. That's amazing. And so I know that you have just recently launched your new book yes, called Activate Your Vagus Nerve. So a topic we're diving into today. And I'm so curious, like, why did you feel compelled to write this book? I'll tell you honestly, I've throughout all of my years of learning about chiropractic care, learning about how the nerves of the brain, the cranial nerves connect to body systems, the vagus nerve has always been a really important factor to me, a really kind of overlooked piece of the health puzzle. And it was something that I had initially written a blog post about a couple of years ago. And a publisher actually read that book and read that blog post and said, I'm really excited because this topic is becoming more and more known. I'd love it if you wrote a book about this. And so that's kind of how it transpired. So last year at it became this possibility. And today it's a real thing. I'm really excited to actually be sharing this information with everybody. That's amazing. Well, I'm so excited for you. And I think a really important area to start with is what is the vagus nerve? Absolutely. It's probably, this is where a lot of people get get confused. And what is the vagus nerve? by any means. And it is a bit of a misconception. There actually are two vagus nerves. We have one vagus nerve on each side of our body, but we tend to just identify it as the vagus nerve because as the nerve goes down, it actually does go and mesh together. The right and left sides will eventually mesh together and affect many of the organ systems. But what the vagus nerve really is, is the major connection between the gut and all of the organs inside our body directly to our brain. It is the gut-brain axis. It is the detoxification axis through the liver, the kidneys. It is the direct connection between the brain and the immune system. And so it is essentially the controlling pathway by which our body is able to recover, 
rest, digest, and actually function optimally. Right. So I can see where a lot of issues can arise when there's dysfunction with with the vagus nerve. So what would be some common signs of vagus nerve dysfunction? Absolutely. There's a few very obvious ones that come to mind, and then there's some that are a little bit more obscure. So the more common signs that the vagus nerve is not firing or not signaling optimally, first off is going to be poor digestion. So this is with people are dealing with diarrhea, constipation, IBS type symptoms, that's probably one of the most common sets of symptoms that people are going to experience. So digestive dysfunction being number one, if you're not having a good bowel transit time, we should have a bowel transit time of between 12 and 24 hours. So 12 to 24 hours after you eat a meal, we should be eventually releasing the waste of that meal. Optimally around 16 hours is the best amount of time. And if we're a little bit off of that between 12 and 24 hours, if we're a little too fast or too slow, that's a sign that vagus nerve is not actually doing its job correctly. Okay. A really great test for this and a way that people can address or or identify whether or not their digestive function is good. I talk about this in the book, but it's called the bowel transit time test where we use sesame seeds, which is something that our body is not able to break down with the enzymes and stuff that we have. So what I get people to do is take a spoonful of white sesame seeds, make sure that they're white, and put them into a glass of water and just drink that water. Don't chew the seeds at all. Once we chew the seeds, we're able to break them down. So if we don't chew them, then those seeds are going to pass through the digestive tract. They're going to go down from the mouth through the esophagus to the stomach through the entire small intestine and the ascending transverse and descending colon and come out. And what I get people to do is mark down the time that they took that drink of the sesame seed water. And when they see the first seeds start to come out in their stool, and when they see the last seeds coming out in their stool. So just keeping track of that. And what that does is it gives you a timeline as to how good or how long that bowel transit time is going to be, and if it's working really, really well, or if it's not, if it's too fast or too slow. That's probably the single easiest way to identify whether there are digestive issues going on, because the vagus nerve controls the actual peristaltic function, the actual movement of food through the entirety of the digestive tract. So that's a really important factor. Another really common concern for a lot of people, and a real common occurrence with vagus nerve dysfunction is actually gallbladder dysfunction and actually having gallstones. So the gallbladder is essentially this little muscular sac that sits beside the liver where the liver sends its bile. So bile is really used to help to absorb our fats from our digestive tract, but it's also necessary to help to push out a lot of the toxins that our liver is trying to eliminate from our body. And so the bile that the liver produces ideally goes to the gall bladder. And if we're not able to pump out fluid from the gallbladder, the bile itself, then over time, the fluid that remains in the gallbladder actually can form stones or crystallize. And so those gallstones are a very common occurrence for people that are not able to pump the gallbladder. And so why the vagus nerve is connected to this is the direct connection from vagus. If we're getting that right signaling, we're able to pump the gallbladder muscular outside and actually push the fluid up. If we're not signaling well, then the gallbladder is not going to do a great job of pushing out. And so a lot of our patients that come in with chronic health conditions, with autoimmunity, with digestive dysfunction, oftentimes have had a gallbladder removed or have had gallstones in the past because of poor vagus nerve function. So those are probably two of the more common signs that we see when people come into the office. Right. Okay. That's really, really interesting. And so what about somebody who doesn't have a gallbladder? Yeah. So it's absolutely like, this is a very common occurrence now because cholecystectomy, excuse me, the removal of the gallbladder is a very, very common occurrence a very common surgery. I was lucky enough during my high school years to actually be able to watch a lot of these. And literally, this was at Ajax Pickering Hospital here in, in Toronto area. And I swear to you, I watched about seven gallbladder removal surgeries just because of how common they were. It just is a, right. a very, very common occurrence. So people that don't have a gallbladder, what's actually going on is your bodies or your livers are going to be extra stressed in being able to push out bile 
and get toxins out of the body, but help to absorb the fats. And so we're actually going to have a lot more digestive dysfunction. And you're often going to find that those people tend to release a lot more fat in their stools. Their steatocrit marker on their stool test will tend to be quite high. And so what that means is we're not able to absorb a lot of the really good fats. If we're having a good clean diet with good fats, we're not going to be able to absorb them. So not only do we need to eat it, but we need to be able to absorb that. Without a gallbladder, the ability to do that is definitely going to be reduced. Right. So are there some strategies that you would put in place or protocols? Yeah, definitely. In those cases, we have a lot of people supplement with some sort of ox bile to help to make sure that we're getting some of those extra nutrients in. So ox bile being kind of that optimal way to get extra fats into your diet. And I think it's so unfortunate that most people don't know that. They go and have their gallbladder removed and the doctors don't tell them you need to supplement with ox bile and it's so essential. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I've heard multiple times that their doctors have said you need digestive enzymes and that's actually incorrect. Digestive enzymes are coming from your pancreas, not from your gallbladder. And so you may need digestive enzymes, but that's not the direct link. It is actually the ox bile that is probably necessary in those specific cases. Awesome. Okay, good to know. So I'd love to talk about stress because I feel like stress has an effect on the vagus nerve. So maybe you can expand on that. Absolutely. So the vagus nerve has four different functions, and I'll get into why stress plays a huge role in this. The first major function of the vagus nerve, and about 80% of the signaling that goes through vagus is specific for afferent function. What that means, afferent, means signals that are going from the organs of the body up to the brain. Now, it's really important to remember all of the organs that vagus is connected to. So we have to think stomach, small intestine, the entire length of it, The large intestine, at least one-third of the large intestine is directly innervated by this. The liver, the pancreas, the gallbladder, the kidneys, and the spleen as well. So we have so many different internal organs that are innervated and actually sending signals about their function to the brain through the vagus nerve. So if we're under stress, that signaling is definitely going to be reduced. Now, The second most important function is the parasympathetic function. This is where we actually look at the comparison between stress, fight or flight response that we have in the sympathetic nervous system versus the parasympathetic rest and digest system. So this is where stress is really going to play a major role in vagus nerve dysfunction. So the vagus nerve signals parasympathetic autonomic activity. That essentially means it's going to signal when we are able to be resting, digesting, recovering. If we're under a lot of stress, our ability to send those signals decreases because we tend to be under the fight or flight system, which is not innervated by vagus, which is innervated by the sympathetic nervous system. Okay, And chronic stress then will activate hormone release from the adrenals, specifically cortisol, and eventually over time can lead to complete cortisol levels crashing out and going into adrenal fatigue, for example. And that in turn will lead to stress with the thyroid and stress with the pancreas because a lot of our hormones actually come from the pancreas as well. And so that link is very important. The other two functions of the vagus are motor function. So it actually sends some signals to muscles, specifically the muscles in the back of the throat and the muscles that innervate the larynx. And so the larynx muscles are the ones that actually tell us about our voice and our our tonality in our voice. One of the coolest tools that you can use to see if vagus nerve is not working well is if you know somebody that has a very monotonous voice. Because if this person speaks with a very monotonous voice and they aren't able to raise pitch or go up or down with their voice, then that is a sign that the signal in vagus is actually quite poor because the muscles are not being used correctly. So a really simple tool if we're listening, and I I do this with all of my patients, I make sure not only do I listen to what they say, but I listen to their voice and how they're saying these things. If their voice is coming out very monotonously, it's a sign that vagus nerve is not functioning very well. Hmm, That's really interesting. And then the last little piece of vagus, the fourth function, is actually sensory to a portion of the ear. And that's really important in being able to treat vagus nerve dysfunction because we can actually use 
auricular acupuncture, acupuncture for the ear in a specific area that can ha- help to trigger the vagus nerve to work well. So the connection with stress has a lot to do with the ability of vagus nerve to function. If we're actually able to get signals going up and down. Now we have to think of all the different types of stress here, right? There's emotional stress, there's biochemical stress, there's going to be psychological and mental stress as well and physical stress. So if we're under physical pain, that's a stressor that our body's going to be feeling. Biochemical stress can be coming from SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, dysbiosis inside our gut. If our bacterial population is not working well, then we will be having poor signals or or signals of increased biochemical stress being sent through vagus because of where the bacteria are located. As we know, the vast majority of our microbiome, our good bacteria, should be located in our large intestine. But if that bacteria moves into the wrong place, into the small intestine, we tend to have biochemical stress and actually have the vagus nerve overreacting, and that is how it can affect it stressfully as well. So there's a lot to think about here. So I'm curious, like, how can we activate our vagus nerve? What are some strategies we can do? Yeah. So I spoke a little bit about using auricular acupuncture specifically to help to signal that. And so there are active and passive strategies, activating it passively using acupuncture. So going to a licensed acupuncture provider or an acupuncturist to have the treatment actually provided is a great way to stimulate vagus nerve activity. Okay. But again, we talked about other functions as well. The motor function is a huge one. And so I get a lot of my patients to do certain exercises to activate vagus. Now, we need to think about how we actually activate nerves, period, and and how we exercise nerves, period. So I want to think very simply about a very basic tool that we use is our biceps, okay? So let's say, for example, somebody who hasn't worked out very much, doesn't go to the gym, tends to be very weak in their upper body, doesn't have a lot of arm strength, that type of person isn't going to be able to go to the gym and pick up a 50-pound weight or pick up a really heavy box. And it's because they haven't signaled. And so when somebody actually goes to the gym or needs to be able to pick up this heavy box, they actually need to train the nerve to do that. So when we go and we start training with a five-pound weight before we can get to a 25 or a 30-pound dumbbell, when we start to train and we start to curl a five-pound weight, we're actually sending a signal from our brain to that specific muscle through the nerve. And we're actually strengthening the nerve function while training it. In fact, while we're doing that motion, we're actually breaking down the muscle tissue. So when we're doing that bicep curl, we're not actually strengthening bicep. We're strengthening the nerve the muscle will actually build up during the recovery time after the workout, after you lift. When you feel really sore, that high lactic acid buildup that can occur, that's, that's a secondary effect, but that's where our muscles are actually building up. So the signaling is what we're working on when we're actually using it. So we need to actually use the vagus in order to stimulate its effect, okay, and to actually allow it to become active again. So this is where we can look at the muscles that are being used or being innervated by vagus, especially the back of the throat and the laryngeal muscles. Okay. So one of the best tools that I give to the vast majority of my patients is gargling. Gargling is a really, really great tool for activating vagus. Now, there are probably about 17 or 18 different exercises that I talk about in the book. But gargling is one of the stronger ones that I have people do on a regular basis. It's a very easy one to incorporate. Keeping a glass by your sink where you brush every morning and evening, it's going to be just a really easy reminder to gargle in the morning and the evening. And now gargling is really important, but we want to make sure that we gargle the right way. We want to gargle to the point hard enough that we're making sounds and making bubbles in the water but it's hard enough that we actually start to tear from our eyes, okay? If we're not having good lacrimation, if we're not able to tear out of our eyes, we're probably not activating the nuclei inside the brainstem of vagus enough to have that exercise going on. So it's like somebody who's very strong, able to lift a 50-pound dumbbell going and picking up a five-pound weight. It's just not going to build up that muscle. It's not going to send enough signal through that nerve. So we need to do it to the point where it's actually causing that tearing to occur from the eyes, okay? 
just talking about it is making my eyes tear up. Like just <laughs> thinking about going to do that. I'm definitely going to play around with that for sure. And so just using regular, like just water. Yeah. Straight water. What I get people to do as well, you can use some essential oils if you want, or I really like having a little bit of Himalayan pink salt put in it as well, okay, because great. we know that salt water has very good antibacterial properties. It's going to at the same time, clear out some of the biofilm and the plaque in the back of our teeth. I was just going to say that's going to be really good for your teeth as well. It's a combination tool that we can use when we gargle using nice warm water with, with a little bit of salt included in that. So that's a really helpful tool for a lot of people. Okay, cool. That's really, really cool. And so this might be a strange question, but I mean, being that the vagus nerve really is involved with our autonomic yes. system, right? So like breathing is what comes to mind. And then I'm just curious if you're a mouth breather versus a nose breather, like does that impact the vagus nerve? It absolutely does. It's, it's probably one of the things that I actually have learned from myself. So when I was dealing with my own health conditions, I actually snored quite a bit. And I didn't realize this until I got married. And my wife started telling me, you breathe through your mouth at night and you snore terribly. And I realized that that was what was contributing to a lot of my own health issues. Because when I breathe through my mouth, I'm not allowing the muscles of my nose and my nasal sinuses and all of those things to actually become activated. Right. And so, yes, absolutely. Breathing through your nose is the way that we should be breathing. Here's a really simple way to know that you should be breathing through your nose and not through your mouth. We have hairs in our nose that are used as a filter for the air that's coming in. We don't have any hair in our mouth. And in fact, we really don't like it when there is any hair. In our mouth. <laughs> right. Right. And we only have teeth in our mouth. We don't have teeth in our nose. So we should be eating through our mouth, right? It's a very simple tool. Our body was created to do that. But our body was really smart in creating a contingency plan for any time your nose is stuffed. If you need to stay alive and breathe, you can breathe through your mouth, but it's not optimal. And so it's definitely not the way we want to go. But if it's necessary, that tool is available to us. So yes, we should absolutely be breathing through our nose in and out optimally, because anything that's filtered in can also be pushed out. So we're not constantly building up more and more stuff in our nasal tract. So yes, absolutely. Breathing through the nose is important. And if we breathe through our mouth, what's actually happening is we collapse our tongue and that collapses the muscles in the back of our throat, our pharynx muscles. And it almost weakens vagus nerve function as well through there as well. So for myself, when I was breathing through my mouth, I was having that issue and I was weakening the vagus. So what I did, and this is a really cool tool that a lot of people can use, is I started using breathe right strips for my nose to make sure that my nose was open more because I tend to only be able to breathe through one of my nostrils. I have a very slightly deviated septum and I also have excess inflammation in my sinuses that reduce the airflow through my nose. So using breathe right strips is a really great way to hack the opening of the nasal passages. And at the same time, one of the greatest tools that I've ever discovered was from a podcast with Mike Mutzel where he spoke to a dentist named Mark Berheen, where he's talked about mouth taping. Yes, I was waiting for that. <laughs> it's absolutely one of the best, best things that I've ever done for myself. And I've actually been able to track it. So I use an aura ring to track my sleep and just like you do. And I, I want to see what's going on with my heart rate variability when I track that. And heart rate variability is actually a sign of vagus nerve function a direct sign of vagus nerve function. So when we use our aura ring or when we use tools to see what's going on with our heart rate variability, we're actually tracking vagus function. And what's really cool is on nights when I make sure to put my mouth tape on, my heart rate variability tends to be higher. And on nights when I don't, my heart rate variability is much lower. Case in point, this past week, I got back from New York. I was really tired at night and I forgot to put on my mouth tape. My heart rate variability averaged around 32 milliseconds, quite low. Whereas last night, and I made sure I did it, I put on the tape and I had my heart rate variability closer to about 60 or 61 milliseconds, almost double what it was from the nights where I didn't do that. And I also have a significantly better sleep score on my aura ring because I did that. So that made a huge difference. And that was really important. So if you breathe through your nose and you make sure not to breathe through your mouth, it's going to be good not only for the muscles of the back of your throat, but you're going to be filtering a lot of that air that's coming in 
and you're going to be activating vagus nerve by controlling that breath pattern and making it very deep and slow. Okay. This is so interesting. I'm like totally wanting to open my aura app right now (laughs) so I can go look at my heart rate variability. So then I guess really my next question is, what is the optimal range for heart rate variability? So this is where it's it's really important to not compare yourself from one person to another. The key to to this, and, and if you go and you look at like Ben Greenfield's, for example, Ben Greenfield right. shows his his aura ring activity and his HRV, his heart rate variability is sitting at like 140 milliseconds. Whoa. But he is an endurance athlete. He's yes. been training and doing things for years and years and years. Whereas I was, I used to be this overweight, like really low activity type of person. So really the key is there isn't an optimal number to reach for. The key is get it as high as possible. Do the things that you can do to improve your own heart rate variability and just track it. And that's going to make the biggest difference. Being able to track and know that melt taping one night and not melt taping another night, and you can see the difference there that's going to make more of a difference than looking for a direct number correlation with heart rate variability. Okay. So now I'm freaking out because I'm literally going through mine and I'm going back through all the dates and mine is low. Really? 17. Probably. Okay. The average is probably 30. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You're like, okay, that's not good. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I got to work on that. There's room for improvement. Exactly. Yeah, I really got to work on that. Well, the it's interesting. The breathing question came up because Gaytan, my fiance, like, he's a mouth breather. Wow. And I'm a nose breather. When I sleep at night, my lips are like zipped shut yeah. and I breathe through my nose and he breathes through his mouth. And so, you know, kind of the same thing with you. He has a bit of like a deviated septum. Yeah. Back in the day, he used to like do kickboxing and boxing. So he's been punched in the nose quite a few times. (laughs) So his breathing isn't that great through his nose. And this morning when I was telling him that I was interviewing you, I was like, oh my God, I got to ask this question because I'm sure (laughs) it totally relates here. Yeah. So that's really interesting. You know, he's tried the mouth taping and he wakes up in the middle of the night, like gasping, like feeling like he's going to die. So he, you know, he just ends up pulling it off. off. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a tough thing to get used to for some people. For sure. It depends entirely on, on the person's ability to handle breathing through their nose. And this is something that I've actively trained myself to be able to do during the day. And so while we're awake, obviously we can control the way that we're breathing, but it's a matter of becoming conscious of how you are breathing. If you're breathing through your mouth, catching yourself and making a change to actively breathe through your nose during the day. Because as you train that, you slowly become more and more used to breathing through your nose, and then it becomes easier at night to actually tape your mouth. Right. Okay. Good to know. Yeah. I feel like, I mean, I've always been a nose breather. And I one of the ways you can also look at that too is your teeth, right? If you are a mouth breather, you're going to build up more plaque quicker because you have more dry mouth. So you don't have the saliva. So that's why growing up, like I never had cavities. I barely had plaque buildup and it was because I'm a nose breather. So that's really, really interesting versus my fiance, like plaque builds up so much quicker with him. Yeah, absolutely. And so those people, like I I used to be in that same position. There was a ton of plaque. I used to get cavities all the time. Right. And that's definitely slowed down in, in the more recent scenarios, I don't have as many of those issues coming up because I've been actively not breathing through my mouth, especially when I'm asleep. So are you using the breathe strips and the tape at the same time? I do it together actually because I want to make sure that my nose is open. Right. Uh, Doing those together can be a great way to do that. Yeah. And are you using a specific tape, like just like a medical grade type tape? Yeah, medical grade surgical tape is really easy. I'd go to the local drugstore, I go to shoppers and pick it up. Okay. Or Amazon has it, I believe the same price. I believe it's just like 3M surgical tape that I use. Okay, yeah, I think that's what we have too, but he's just not using it. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I'm going to make him listen to this episode and then hopefully uh, he'll start that up again. That's awesome. Okay, so I'd love to, I mean, we're kind of just chatting a bit about sleep and I'm sure sleep plays a role here. And yes. can you expand on that a bit? Definitely. So sleep is really important because sleep is when we recover from all of the stressors throughout the day. So while we're awake, we tend to be under some level of stress, biochemical, physical, emotional, mental, 
the light that's coming into our eyes. These are all stressors that we tend to experience throughout the day. And sleep is when we are able to close our eyes, shut off from sounds, shut off from smells, and just be able to allow our bodies to do the job that it needs to do to repair and recover from that daily stress. And so if we don't sleep well, we're not going to be able to recover very well and our stressors build up and they compound over time. When we sleep really well, our heart rate variability increases at night. And that is a direct sign. If we have a trend of heart rate variability increasing throughout the night, that means that your sleep is good and your recovery is going to be stronger. It means that you started off low and you ended up with a higher heart rate variability. So the trend over time is important. And heart rate variability tends to be significantly higher during the night than it does during the day. That's because our vagus nerves are active while we're sleeping because they're causing our immune systems to do the job that they need to do. Autophagy tends to happen during nighttime because we're not eating at that time as well. Our digestive system is given a, a rest. Our liver is able to kind of filter out any of the extra stuff that's built up over time. And our bodies tend to be in a much better position when we wake up in the morning very rested. That's a really, really important feature here. We can't discount that enough. The vagus nerve is active more at night than it is during the day. We have to actively make sure that we're in a calm state during the day, but at night we tend to be in a very calm state and that allows vagus to do the job that it needs to do. So when people aren't sleeping well, vagus is not able to function very well. And those people that tend to not sleep well have lower vagus nerve tone and tend to have more issues with their health overall. Okay. And I noticed on Instagram, you mentioned something about sleeping on your right side. This is a really interesting study that I found during my research for the book. They compared people that were belly sleepers versus back sleepers versus side sleepers. So it was like kind of a two-stage research study. And they noticed that people that sleep on their side tend to have higher heart rate variability and tend to be better nose breathers and those types of things. And then on top of that, then they compared the two sides just to see if there was a difference. And what they noticed was heart rate variability tended to be higher in those who sleep on their right side. It was a really interesting finding. They didn't conclude as to why it happened, but they just found that heart rate variability in about 80% of subjects was higher when they slept on their right side than on their left. Interesting. Because I would think it'd be on the left because where your heart You would think so, but it actually allows your heart to kind of rest. And we have to remember as well, the heart is actually very, very close to the center. It's really just tilted towards the left side. Right, right. So it is essentially a central organ that's just tilted slightly. So it is interesting to me, but I think it has to do with the signaling of vagus to the heart because the left side vagus nerve has more of a heart specific function. That's really interesting. Yeah. Okay. So let's chat digestion Yes. and let's just go beyond the food here because food is one of the biggest things we're always talking about, mm-hmm. getting good quality food, but it's a waste if you're buying all this organic food and then you can't digest it. And obviously there's a huge connection between the vagus nerve and digestion. So let's expand on that a little bit. Definitely. So where digestion comes into play is you can eat the healthiest food imaginable. You can eat organic vegan, you can eat organic paleo, you can eat organic keto, but if you're not digesting that food, you're not getting it in. We have a really great saying in the office at Living Proof that you are what you eat digest, absorb, and don't eliminate. That's really important because you can't just say you are what you eat. If you're not absorbing it, it's not going to get into your body. It's not getting into your cells. And then it's not doing the job that it needs to do. So how can we make sure that we are digesting correctly, actually using stomach acid properly, producing enough of it, pancreatic function that we're getting the right digestive enzymes in and, and bile coming in. So let's talk about digestion. So digestion is a really important factor for getting nutrients into our body, both macronutrients and micronutrients. The vast majority of our macronutrients, fats, carbs, amino acids come into our body through our small intestine. But if we don't have a good signal going to our stomach, we're not going to be able to break those foods down using the acid of our stomach. Okay, And that signal to produce acid comes through the vagus nerve once we actually start chewing our food. So the way to make sure that you're able to produce a good amount of stomach acid is to chew your food correctly. This is how we can dictate the signal getting to the stomach really well. 
So again, if we're eating in a big rush, we tend not to chew our food very, very well. We are eating under a stressed environment, then we're not able to chew that food really well. And this is important because as we chew our food down really well, we break it down from big to small molecules that will then fit into our taste buds on our tongue. Those taste buds take the signal of the type of food that it is, whether it's sweeter food, sugar, protein-filled, fat-filled, whatever it is, and it's going to send a signal to the brain saying, this is a fattier bite, this is a sugary bite, this is a protein-filled bite, and then it's going to send a signal through vagus to the stomach, to the gallbladder, to the liver, and to the pancreas, and to the small intestine as well. And that signal is going to go down to the stomach. It's going to say, food is coming. You need to start producing acid. And it's going to tell the parietal cells of the stomach to start sending out hydrochloric acid. At the same time, the signal is going down to the liver to produce more bile, to the gallbladder, if you have one, to push out that bile, to the pancreas to produce the right types of digestive enzymes. So for fattier bites, we're going to produce more lipases. For sugary bites, carb-filled bites, we're going to produce more amylases. And for protein-filled bites, we're going to produce more proteases, specific enzymes to help to break down those foods even further so that they're easily absorbed once it gets to the small intestine. Okay, We require that specific signaling in order for digestion to occur. Because if we're eating really quickly or we're eating in a rush or we're living in our drive-thrus, that's going to lead to no signaling going down through vagus, decreased stomach acid production, decreased protein synthesis in the pancreas, and decreased enzyme enzymes being sent out into the small intestine, thus decreasing the absorption of important nutrients. So this is where you are what you eat, but then you have to digest, absorb, and then eliminate what's not necessary. And that comes down in through the large intestine and the ascending and descending colon, as well as the transverse colon. So we want to make sure that the signals are getting down there correctly. And the best way to do that is to make sure that you are chewing your food very well and not eating under stressed circumstances. Very, very important that we eat in a relaxed, calm environment. What I get a lot of my patients to do is to take their lunches away from their desks. Don't eat in front of your computer. It's probably one of the worst things you can do get away from there, go sit outside, get some fresh air, get some sunlight if you're able to during the day. Just go away from the stressful environment of your desk or your workstation and get out and do something a little bit different. Be in a calm, relaxed environment. Another really great tool before you eat is to do a little bit of humming or chanting or some deep breathing exercises to help to activate vagus because it's saying it's time to get into a rest and digest state. So we need to be rested in order to digest. So if you sit down, you have your meal sitting in front of you, amazing salad or whatever it is that you're eating, sit there and just close your eyes for a moment and be grateful for that food because you know what? You have that food. You're, you're blessed to actually have a good meal sitting in front of you. Take that moment, be grateful. But then at the same time, use that time to activate your vagus. Do a little bit of humming, chanting. You can say om. One of the really cool tools Yoga is actually a great way to activate the vagus nerve. And what we realized through my research is the actual use of the word OM and the, the humming and the actual activation of those vocal cords, when we say OM and we get that vibration occurring, it's actually stimulating vagus. It's a really, really great way to get you into a position where you're able to digest really, really well. That's really, really great to know. I feel like I've got so much work to do. I got to go to sleep. I got to gargle. I got to do some humming and chanting to work on my vagus nerve. When I was in my yoga teacher training many years ago, obviously there was a lot of focus on breath. So that was important. And then our chanting, like it was, yeah. it was so great. Yeah. So, okay. I got to get back to that. I got to introduce some more ohm <laughs> back in my life. Absolutely. So I'd love to chat a little briefly about autoimmune, because I know that this is something you work so closely with in your practice. And I'm really curious, what are some of the commonalities that you see amongst autoimmune patients? For sure. So whether you're coming into our office with a diagnosis of Hashimoto's or Graves, MS, Crohn's, ulcerative colitis, whatever the autoimmune condition is that you've been diagnosed with, we always have to look back at where are these things being caused from? What is the root cause, the trigger behind these conditions. 
And in about 95 to 99% of cases, we notice that there is an issue starting in the gut. That's where all autoimmune conditions, for the most part, have their root cause. And that can happen because we don't have great signaling and we don't have great digestion occurring through vagus or through the small intestine or because we have some sort of bacterial, parasitic, yeast-based, viral-based, some sort of imbalance in our gut that's triggering our immune system to do things that it shouldn't be doing. The vast, vast majority of people that have an autoimmune condition have a leaky gut. They are dealing with intestinal hyperpermeability. And what's really, really interesting about this and how Vegas connects directly to autoimmunity is that the 70% of our immune cells, our white blood cells, are located in the lining of our gut in tissue called the gut-associated lymphatic tissue or GALT. And that tissue, those white blood cells are actually controlled. Their function is limited by vagus nerve activity because the vagus nerve uses a neurotransmitter called acetylcholine to activate an entire system that's known as the cholinergic anti-inflammatory pathway. And that actually is like putting the brakes on the immune system. And if we don't have good signaling through vagus, then we're not going to be able to control our white blood cell function. And we're going to start to produce antibodies that are going to go and react against our own cells, our own organs. So they're going to actually, under lack of control from vagus, we're going to have antibodies that are going out and attacking our nerves in MS, attacking our kidneys and our liver in lupus, attacking our thyroid and Hashimoto's and Graves, attacking every single, like in eczema and in vitiligo, is going to be attacking certain skin cells. So all of these are linked to inflammatory pathways and immune pathways that are occurring and starting in the gut. So vagus nerve is going to put the brakes on it. And if you don't have a good signal from vagus, then the autoimmune reaction is going to definitely occur. There's three very important pieces to the autoimmune puzzle in every single case. The first number one piece is people are going to have some sort of genetic predisposition. Okay, vast majority of people now that have an autoimmune condition have some sort of gene, whether it be like an HLA gene, HLA-B27, HLA-DR8, whatever the gene is, it's essentially like having a gun, okay? You have the gun, but having a gun doesn't predispose you to having a gunshot take place. It's really important that we have two other pieces of that puzzle. You need to have a bullet. That bullet is the environment. It's really, really important that the environment that we have be optimized. And if it's not up to optimized, then we're actually going to essentially have a bullet that fits really well into that gun. So this is where we're looking at dysbiosis, gut bacteria, SIBO, imbalanced immune system, vagus nerve dysfunction, poor digestion. The things that we can control are essentially that bullet. And so if we're not doing a good job controlling it, the bullet is going to fit in the gun. Now, the third piece of that puzzle is actually somebody to pull that trigger. It's really important that we have those two pieces in place. And if there is something that occurs, a stressful life event, for example, that comes up or a hormonal dysfunction or having a kid is a very common trigger for an autoimmune situation to come up. One of the most common things we see is a 30-year-old female coming in with Hashimoto's or Graves' disease after having a child because of the stress of being pregnant, delivery, and then not having good sleep for the first three to six months after having a child. So they've got those three pieces in place. They've got the gun. The environment wasn't great because of the gut bacteria or their vagus nerve wasn't working really well. And then the trigger was pulled because of the stressful life event that occurred of having a kid. It's one of the most common things we see. And if we can fix up the environment, we can then decrease the symptoms and actually have these issues start to go away given the right circumstances. Right. So gut, genetics, environment all play a really huge role. Exactly. Yes. And all areas I had to look at because I have autoimmune Hashimoto's. So I know it very well. (laughs) Awesome. Well, you shared so much amazing information today. Thank you so much for your time, for your insights. Where can everybody find you? My absolute pleasure to be here today. You can find me at drhabib.ca, D-R-H-A-B-I-B.ca. And if you want to learn more about the book, and you can even order it through the links on the website, you can go to vagusnervebook.com. 
It's very important. This is not the same as Las Vegas. <laughs> it is E-G-U-S, VegasNerveBook.com. Okay. Yes, I was thinking that. I'm like, people probably think it's Vegas, E-G-A-S. <laughs> That's awesome. And so your book is already ready for... It's up for pre-order at this exact moment. It'll be actually released next month. So it should be up and running very soon. That's amazing. Well, I'm so excited for you. And I will share all the links to your book and your website. And over on Instagram, you're hanging out there too, right? Yes, absolutely. I spend a lot of time sharing on Instagram. So awesome. So (laughs) yes, we'll share all the links over on our show notes and everyone can connect with you there. And thanks so much for being with us today. Absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me and sharing this important message. My pleasure. It was so insightful and I've got some work to do now. Got to work on that heart rate variability. (laughs) Amazing. Thank you. Take care. What a great episode. I really hope you guys enjoyed that. I always love diving into a new topic that I'm not so familiar with. And it's just new strategies and protocols that I can implement into my everyday to really take my health and my hormones up to the next level. So ladies, we got to manage our stress. We got to get to sleep and start gargling and chanting before we eat. So things I am definitely going to start implementing. So I'd love to hear from you. Connect with me over on Instagram at Holistic Wellness Foodie. Let me know what strategies you're implementing from today's episode and be sure to grab your copy of Activate Your Vegas Nerve. That's V-A-G-U-S, not V-E-G-A-S. All right. And head on over to the website, holisticwellness.ca forward slash episode 51. So you can grab today's show notes and connect with Dr. Navaz Habib. And you can also find him on Instagram at Dr. Habib. Thanks everybody for tuning in today. And I will chat with you guys next week.